I'm going to make a joke with this. I can read what's in your mind. <laughs> no, it's for special hearing aids that I have. So. <laughs> so this is my first time I'm going to hear to sort of uh, try those um, ads in this temple with that many people. We don't have so many people anyway, ever. So um, please, this is a time of question and answer. So feel free to ask whatever you wish to ask. We have to finish by 5.30 fairly promptly. Right, so um, probably, so this is gonna be the test. I can, yeah. Hey, who is passing the microphone? Is somebody passing the microphone to, yeah. So does he need a microphone or no? Well, there's a gentleman behind him also. Okay, we've got somebody in front of you. So here's a question coming. Why don't you just give the microphone and uh, I don't know, are you trying to repair it or? If somebody can help them with the, obviously the microphone is not working. So perhaps somebody has got a loud voice. They don't need a microphone. It's not the first question. Uh, hello. Um, I was uh, just wondering um, what your take is on the uh, kind of differences between meditating on a mantra like Buddha and meditating on the breath. Um, because I've used both and I see um, pros and cons of uh, both of them, like namely Buddha, because it's you know just a, a word, it's kind of easy just to keep that ringing in your head over and over. But the the, the breath can really kind of calm the body and the mind down, though I find it to be quite, to induce drowsiness quite easily. Um, I know Ajahn Mun, Ajahn Mahabua, even uh, Ajahn Chah used the Buddha mantra to meditate on. Um, though I, 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 though I find it quite useful, um, it does kind of give me headache sometimes. You have know, to constantly be reciting the the word. Um, so I, I was just kind of wondering what your take is on, um, you know, where in line with the, the that mantra fits into the Buddha's kind of original method for insight because you know, he taught he taught breath meditation whereas uh, Ajahn Mun was exclusively using the word Buddha and both of these beings attained what we believe to be uh, you know, the perfect enlightenment so I was just wondering what your take is on the difference between the two meditation techniques okay, okay. that's your question yeah. Whatever works is what you use usually. Buddha doesn't work for you. Just don't use it. We don't need to have a take on it. From my experience, um, there are many things that can work to 
keep your mind in the present moment, you know, because you have to understand why you do these things. Um, you know, it's not sort of it's a it's, it's a technique. It's a it's a method. It's a skillful means that you use to bring the attention in the present moment with something very simple like bud in do out. The breath, natural breath. We don't do pranayama, just natural listening to the natural breath. So both works, but the breath is um, something that's most quite difficult for some people because there is still a lot of, you know, um, uh, a natural mind controlling mind, you know. And so if you control the breath for too long without really skills, with no skills, then it can, you know, cannot can be disadvantageous because. The breath is very important for your body-mind uh, equilibrium. So um, I don't have any take on it myself. I tried both of them, and they both have their usefulness. Uh, you know, for me, that Ajahn Man did it or somebody else did it, I just like to experiment myself, just how it works, rather than to uh, go by somebody, what some great master did. And I understand your question because I think we all ask this question ourselves. You know, so it's not something that we haven't asked, that I haven't asked myself. You know? But in the end, you know, um, it takes a while to develop the skill of using one, one skillful means. It takes a skill to use one object, even with a breath. I remember when I went to Thailand, spent uh, you know, a couple of years in the forest. I uh, decided to do the breath meditation, to do sort of anapanasati. And it took a while to be very natural with it, to be like a second skin, so you don't even have to think about it. The mind just does, the body does it, mindfulness of the breast, just on a, almost on automatic. It's on automatic because the mind has been trained just to use that for, for a while. But it didn't come straight away. You know, you just had to experiment and to feel uncomfortable and maybe to feel, oh my God, this is not working, and then to keep on doing it. And eventually, um, you just find that it becomes a natural, um, you know, it becomes natural, yeah. And with a mantra, mantra is, is a bit more coarse in the sense that you have to say a word, Buddha, Buddha. And at some point, the mind is still enough and quiet enough, you can, it drops by itself almost. You know? So none of them have uh, magic, skillful means. They're just, a help, a very simple help to bring uh, attention to the mind that keeps tr sort of going back and forth in time, you know, and getting distracted by all the traffic that goes on in it. So having breaths, you can, you know, you can use a breath on the vipassana method, you just kind of, the mind goes uh, in and out all over the place, and you can bring it back again and again in the present moment with the breath, using the breath. Or using the mantra, or you can use it for concentration practice, that kind of thing. So, um, as I say, your question: Do you have any take? I don't have any take on either of them, but both can be useful um, if you experiment with them. It's a simple means; they have no magic in it, you know, except that the magic is like they bring you back to the magic moment of now. Is uh, is it true that different kind of temperaments? prefer different techniques. Uh, I think um, I feel like, you know, the, the mind kind of proliferates a little too much. is more useful with a mantra. So I, 
I was just kind of wondering in terms of, you know, my own mind kind of thing. Uh, if, like, the kind of, um, if you're, if you're of the kind of habit to think, perhaps, yes, too much. This is this is what Nijan told me in Thailand. If you have the habit of what exactly? If, if you if you think too much, I don't know what he's comparing it to. But, uh, I was just told by Nijan that you know if you're habitually you know kind of overthink or that a mantra may be better, just for the uh, different temperaments. Yes, of sometimes people. you you just need something to be more solid. You know, sometimes, you know, in, in Thailand, they can use even just the lift of the hand, the hand, like like this, just to see here and now, just to stay in the present moment, you know. Some some have different kind of means, you know. That's kind of, you know, sometimes the breath might be too subtle for the yeah. mind to stay attentive on it. Uh, would um, it be a mistake to try to use both? Or would you just stick to one? No, there's no sticking in practice, you know. Just be present, and then um, you can develop, cultivate and develop a particular uh, means of uh, an object of meditation. Uh, nothing is, you know, no, the mind is not a rigid thing. It's, it's a flowing, you know, it's a mind to keep flowing. So... You have to be a bit careful how to use technique and method because you can sometimes it can be uh, counteractive to seeing things as they are. Yeah. So sometimes you just have to realize that insisting too much on method and techniques is actually taking you away from seeing clearly what's going on, and the mind is much more uh, flexible than just a, a technique and a method. Technique and method is just means to keep you aware in the present moment, whether when you can see past and future, when you can see uh, the objects as Anisha Dukkanata, when you can see when you get lost and you want to go back into the present moment. Just simple means of, you know, helping the mind to see itself. Yeah? So maybe we finish on that because other people are waiting yeah, thank also you. for questions. Thank you. Good afternoon, Ajahn. Good afternoon. Uh, yesterday, Tanajan Suchito uh, offered an instruction uh, to prepare the body as a ground, a grounding place for the mind to sit, to rest. Um, I was wondering if you could explain how to reconcile that instruction with using the Asupa practices to teach the mind that the body is not beautiful, the body is not self, to keep the body from a, to keep the mind from attaching to the body. So I, I couldn't understand how to distinguish or reconcile those two. Do, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I can. I, I hear you. Um, Ajahn Suchito was, um, in a way, uh, sharing his own experience of mind and body, um, his personal experience of it. And, um, yeah, we all have, in a way, um, an approach to practice that corresponds to what we need often, you know, what is needed. 
So, <clears throat> a super practice, you know, is 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 nothing to do with not loving the body, <laughs> you know, accepting the body as it is, and um, you know, seeing the body as part of nature. Um, letting the body rest, you know, letting the mind rest in the body, um, they're not so separate one from the other, you know, it's just like an energetic field of matter and, and, and mind, yes? So when you practice, you, you know, there's many ways of, um, I can just respond for myself because I'm trying to kind of remember what Ajahn Suchito said about what his experience, and that's confusing for me. But um, I don't feel I have to, you know, I was quite embodied already my, when I started because I did dance, I was a dancer for a long, long time, for, I mean, for a long time, not very long time, but a long time, long enough to be really in the body. But it doesn't mean that the mind is in the body yet, you know. Um, Part of oneself is resting in the body. One's attention is very much on the body, but the thinking mind is still very much disconnected, can, or can be disconnected from the body. Yeah. So the asupa practice doesn't stop you from resting the mind in the body. Okay. When I don't know how he uses this um, this term terminology, but for me, it's more. Uh, you know, you you see, you can see the separation of mind and body. You can see clearly in vipassana practice what the mind does, what the body does, but also you realize they, they work together. You know, everything, every thought has an influence of the body. So, um, in that sense, they're not separate. And um, the idea of resting, letting the mind rest in the body, has to do with just being very present. To me, it's very present. When you're very present here and now, there's mind and body in the field of your attention. They are there. Right, then you can you can as you bring your 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 kind of your your mind your attention your sati onto the field that you observe, then you can see uh, your mind reacting and maybe a sensation responding, or your mind being averse to something and uh, maybe another thought comes and bring more unpleasant feeling in the body. So they completely intertwine in some ways, you know. So, um, and some people, it's much more, uh, not just disconnected, but actually, <laughs> they don't even know they have a body. <laughs> they walk around as if they had no body. They're just a brain walking around. Right? I don't know if you've seen that in yourself or in oneself. You know, you just, there's a lot of emphasis in the, in the practice to kind of keep, you know, keep your, your attention in the body because a lot of the time the mind just kind of, uh, you know, jumps out and goes somewhere else and has its own life and has no care for the body, right? Now, can you um, maybe emphasize um, in your question this? You brought the asupa practice in this and you thought that was kind of um, not in harmony, the fact that. Resting the mind in the body and that super practice. Well, I was, I was, I was. I guess I was confused about whether the super practice was t trying to teach the mind, train the mind to let go of the body or to not identify with the body yeah. as a self. Yeah. But then hearing Ajahn uh, talk about 
bringing the mind to rest in the body, to be at home in the body, to be comfortable there, seems like a dis... Um, <laughs> I hear you. I hear what you say. <laughs> it's funny. Because, um, you know, it's not because you're comfortable in the body and mind that suddenly you can't see no self. <laughs> it's, it's not... It, it, it has nothing, it, and they have something to do with each other, but the mind that is awake and mindful can see the Dhamma, and when you see the Dhamma, then you see the fact that each other's three characteristics and each other kanata. Okay? So resting the mind in the body doesn't mean you attach your body or you attach to your mind. It means for, for people who have a real difficult time being in the body, liking their body, the place of the, having metta for the body, okay? People who have a hard time having metta for their body, accepting their body as it is, feeling comfortable with nature of the body, have to do that kind of work, probably an extra supply of skills to be in the body. You know, I have to say, I mean, I'm French, and in England, I see people walking around, they're much less in the body than many of the French people I know, or, you know, people from country where there is much more a sense of the embodiment of the body, not just a mind in the body, but just their life is in the body. You know, there's no kind of separation between mind for them. Those people, there's no separation between what you think, what you feel, what, you know, the body, the whole thing is you know, moving together. So I think I can see in, in the country like, in, like England, um, it takes uh, quite a lot for people to sort of um, feel comfortable in their body. For me, when I came to England 40, 45 years ago, I was amazed because people seemed to be um, kind of so uncomfortable in their body, so tight, so uptight. Ajahn Sichito, Ajahn Sumedho used to say, you know, there was a kind of a sense um, that the British, when they came to the monastery, he, he realized they, they were always, they, there is this cultural kind of feel in, in the English culture. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I hope I don't disturb you. I hope I just, you know, I hope it's okay to come in. I hope I'm not a nuisance, you know, I'm not. That kind of thing affects the body. <laughs> when you live in America or even in Thailand, you know, it's like, here I am, you know, hi, you know, and then you start sharing your life and uh, there's no problem, you know, within five minutes, you know everything about each other and then you might never see each other again. So the, the thing is, you know, yeah, you can, I don't have any problem myself, just, just do your super practice to make sure that you know that your mind is, is can see the dharma of the body, you know, see the the side that is beautiful and the side that is not so beautiful, and that helps simply to counterbalance the the attachment to external world, you know, because we like form. I'm I love form. I love beautiful form. I love beauty. I love the, and suddenly uh, I, I it's not difficult for me to just to see the other side, you know. The inner side of the, but for the Western it's difficult. You say the liver, liver, the yasuba liver, you know, bad liver, something really bad about the organs or something. Most Westerners find their body inside the liver, the heart, really beautiful. And the, you know, for Buddhist, Thai Buddhist, it's like 
what? You know, my heart is pumping, it's so gorgeous when I look at it, you know, it's like, and my, 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 my muscles and my, my tummy is fine, it's great, you know, and inside I know I've got all these things inside and I feel so much love for that, you know, and sort of, you know, if you develop meta. But there's not a sense that the inside is so ugly. But we have a definite kind of blindness and com get completely confused by attraction to things that we find beautiful and attractive, like bodies or people or, you know. So this is just a way of, uh, of counteracting, you know. But apart from that, most, uh, uh, much of the meditation has to do with, um, you know, seeing things as they are. And as you see things as they are, anicca, dukkanata, then you start relaxing, you know. You start, you don't take yourself so personally. When somebody says something, you don't constantly hurt or feel upset because your thoughts have been challenged or your feelings have been challenged, you know. So if they have been challenged and you feel hurt, it simply means you were identified with them. So you don't need to worry too much. You've seen finally the dharma of that, is that when you identify with something, it hurts. But most of the time we say it's their fault, it's his fault, her fault, my mom's fault, my granny, my ancestors, and so on. Now we, we're really good and clever at getting out of, you know, of our path of awakening, you know, which is kind of a self-fault. It's a cultural fault, you know. But in the end, as a summoner, you can't do that anymore. You have to really take responsibility for your own world, for the world you create. So this just has skillful means. And resting in the body is part of feeling more at ease as you get less identified with mind and body and less uh, attached, you know, and, and less desirous of, um, you know, of what... The, uh, the desire of attraction or repulsion, and so you're less caught up in that. The mind naturally uh, uh, retract from um, these views, you know. Okay? Oh, hello, sister. Is that, I've got a question. Where, where, where are they? Oh. Well, is somebody, a gentleman, talking before you? <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. There was a gentleman's. Oh yeah, over here, sister. Okay. Hello, sister. I've got a very, um, I suppose, ordinary question. Uh, what kind of question? Ordinary, very ordinary, ordinary question. question. Very ordinary That's question. Right. Dharma is ordinary. Oh, yeah. uh, it's about waiting on retreat. I seem to do quite a lot of waiting, waiting around. Um, there's quite a lot of waiting energy at times. You know, like when my knees start hurting, I start waiting for the bell. Then when I, you know, go to lunch, that's when it's at its height waiting energy, waiting in the line. And it seems to just be a fact of retreats. And sometimes I'm, you know, quite relaxed, quite calm. Um, it's, it's gentle, it goes. And other times it comes back again. It seems to be this interplay between being present, being gentle in here, and then quite a lot of waiting energy, actually. Waiting for the next session, waiting for this, waiting for that. In your mind, you in mean? In my mind, yeah. So I was wondering, what's your kind of practical advice on such Freedom with such energy. Have you ever read the, the, the novel called Waiting for Godel? Godel? The play? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the mind is always kind of uh, jumping ahead. So you have to wait. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
it's always kind of taking you ahead of what you're doing instead of just recognizing that um, you know that's just how it is now it's just you know you're waiting because why are you why do you say you're waiting I ask yourself why do I wait are you waiting for something do you need to wait or can you just be mindful of here now why do you you know what makes you feel you're waiting it's interesting huh it's just a verb, isn't it? But the feeling behind that verb, what is that? It's usually restlessness or being hungry. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, you wish you could be, you know, two people down the, down the, 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 the file, the, the, the queue, so you can get that piece of chocolate that sort of. Usually about four or five, actually, to be fair. <laughs> Preferably at the front of the queue. That would be even yeah. better. <laughs> so you understand restlessness now? Yeah. That's it. It's just, get... it's just a case of being patient, and this is how it is right now. Yeah, don't worry. You've got six billion people that are really impatient in this world. <laughs> you're, not doing, you're not the only one. So, any more questions? Yeah, just... Okay, I don't speak very well uh, English, but uh, I try. Um, yesterday, Ajahn uh, Sumedo said that uh, in Dhamma we have just to feel and never ask why. Okay, but uh, in my experience, um, I do. Uh, psychotherapy for a long year and uh, I think that without psychotherapy uh, I arrived to to do uh, meditation with a lot of problem for example I want to say I think I have a lot of friends that have a lot of uh, um, or depression, or uh, narcissism, or schizoide, okay? And we began to do meditation in, in that manner. Huh? Mm. So I would like to know what you think about uh, psychotherapy. That's excellent. Mm. <laughs> I don't think, we have done quite a lot of psychotherapy here as a community, and it's neither good nor bad. <laughs> It has enabled a lot of people to carry on doing their own thing in the community. <laughs> it's, you know, on, if, you, if you're very concerned about the distress of your psychological mind, then psychotherapy can help on a psychological level. Yeah? It doesn't get you out of anything in the sense that you can maybe understand better, but you will never sort of... Uh, come to the point of transcendence as your liberation, you could say, that the Buddhist teaching can offer. Because in a way, what you're dealing with in, the, in psychotherapy, you're dealing with a troubled self, okay? And in Buddhism, you, you are realizing there's nobody around. But it's, there's no self, there's, no, no, there's not a person called yeah. self. 
So um, it's two different things. They, they are attending two different things. One is attending the part of the mind that still very much is caught up, you know, identify with the idea of having a, a person that has a problem that, you know, that the, with a whole baggage that comes with thinking you are a per, you know, permanent person and you have, you've got to sort it out, got to solve this, you've got to... Well, um, in reality, in the practice, I, I know what you're talking about because we have experienced that ourselves in our community. In fact, I still remember one very wonderful nun who disrobed in the end. Uh, she was a tough one. But she was, uh, you know, she, she basically, she was thinking, they can't, you can't carry on like that. They, they, they've got to do therapy, otherwise it's, you know, people just uh, could not make it in a way. You know, they could not. They would have maybe meditation, they would force too much, they would push too much, they would repress, and eventually they kind of blew up, you know, or kind of had a breakdown or something, you know. So we're much more careful these days, you know, who come to the community. Some people, most people have had quite a lot of experience in meditation now before they come to this place. So um, it has its place, you know, psychotherapy has its place. And yes, in one, not everybody is ready for meditation or even the training, the training, not everybody is too, is too, it's, it really is, the path narrows down, you know, it's like a pressure, you get more pressure, the mirror is clearer, and the stuff that from your mind is more intense. So not everybody can take that pressure, and not everybody wants to do that either. It takes a lot of faith, you know, it takes a lot of confidence that it's going to work. <laughs> you don't even know why. But something in us just feels that kind of confident, this is a way. So that helps you to go through the difficult time of this life, you know. So um, I have seen its usefulness very much. I've been very grateful myself that we've had people helping us. But also the, its limitation. Because in a way, yes. <laughs> I was going to say something a bit naughty. For a therapist, if people have no problem, then that's the end of their job. Joke, joke. <laughs> Sorry, I hope I don't insult any therapist here. But in a way, a good therapist will be happily leave their patient go, you know, once the work is over. But, um, you know, it's, one can get addicted to have constantly somebody sorting out our problems. Whereas at some point, um, you know, we, we just need to uh, enable ourselves to solve our difficulties when they are not too heavy. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of important to have somebody listening, somebody helping, supporting. You know, and that very big change in our community from the time when we started at Chitters, there was still a, a deep influence from the Thai tradition where, you know, you were really gang-ho if you ask a question every two years, <laughs> like if you had a problem, you just went to, you know, to a chansomedo or it was somebody, it was like in the, in the style of the community, still from Ajahn Shah, if you could solve your problem yourself, you were really gang-ho. You know, gang. That's Thai or English? Gango. <laughs> you are really gango. <laughs> you know. So, but now you can you can have teachers, nuns, and teachers, monks, teachers, and so on. You know, you can go and see them anytime, and so it's easier. You know, 
but okay, that's enough. All right. Hi, oh. sister. Oh, hi. Um, my question uh, is regarding women, and um, my question is regarding women and the practice of women um, and the natural initiations we go through uh, from menarche, menstruation, and then a lot of women, pregnancy, lactation, and um, menopause, and um, how we can use these phases of our lives um, to open up and transcend how we can go through them mindfully and um, what you have seen, what you have experienced, especially here in the monastery with women that are um, obviously practicing mindf mindfulness in a very intense way. That's it. In relationship to the different stages of women's, women's life? Yes. Well, one thing we don't have, we, you know, at least we don't need to get babies. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> And then, the other three. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's you know it's not so different from you, you know, the same thing except that. Um, do you know monasteries are not full of saint and enlightened being here? I can tell you, it's just a, a lot of normal people, and uh, they they struggle just like you and and everybody else. So you can see some. They're not here anymore. So some nuns will get panic and get all these medication for menopause. You know, I mean, look, we're going to go down to have super practice, and we're going to die if we are reflecting on death every day. And then so there, some of them will be having these special pills, you know, to get the hormones going. And you know, that's one level. You know, another level is, you know, when you practice, stop now, stop now, you know, don't wait. Because when you practice, um, you know, mind and body becomes a lot more friendly with each other. You know, the mind is is a tough place. It's full of, you know, it's a kind of the, the, the program of anger, greed, and, and delusions are rampant, you know. So it can be easily, really be uh, quite harmful to the body, the mind, you know, which is constantly churning anger and frustration and, uh, you know, irritation and panic and, you know, traumas and all that, you know, it can actually harm your poor belly or anything, you know. Any part of your body can just be affected by the thoughts, the negative thoughts. So start now to let go of all that stuff and your menopause will be fantastic, I'm sure. <laughs> that, um, that's, that's kind of what I mean. It's like a, for um, many women in the world, um, we're very disconnected from these natural initiations, and if perhaps if we can actually completely change our our perception of them, um, so that we can include them in our practices, kind of wonderful things that happen rather than negative. Well, the first thing I will do just check out the initiation concept in in the bin, and just see nature. Nature, nature doesn't have a problem. You know, trees grow, plants grow. Cats, dogs grow. They don't need a whole initiation to become a good rat, you know. And I'm sure all the rat female have menopause at some point. <laughs> they don't need an initiation to follow their nature. But if we are really mindful of our own nature, then we are, you know, we are initiated into the truth, you know, into the Dhamma. If you want a, the word initiation, we just transformed, realize, you know, we realize 
the truth in, in from moment to moment, you know. So when the chitta, when your mind has been trained to see the 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 the, the nature of your body and mind, then it's peaceful. It's like it's 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 like it's it's it knows what to do because it it just knows. You know, it's not fooled by anger, it's not fooled by greed, of course. It doesn't mean you don't overdo it on chocolate and things like that sometimes. But it's, it's, it's just at peace, it's more at peace with itself, do you understand? That's what you, we all need, more peace. But not the peace of sleepiness and slumber. We need the peace of awakening, of knowledge, you know, Dharma knowledge. That's a kind of peace, you know, sort of we need. It's like when you see... Your mind, the, the peace that comes from letting go, the peace that comes from releasing your mind, but letting go and releasing your from your from your mind, the unskillful mental state or emotions and whatever, that takes a lifetime path to bear with it, because uh, you know you talk about unskillful mental state, emotional you know affliction, affliction or afflictive emotions or whatever you know, but the actual experience of these things, it is part of your past, and most people want to get at the end of it before they understand. And that's their choice. I mean, we will have choice to do what we want in this life. But the, you know, it's really good to me, that's how I function in my, on my practice, is that once I've understood, I've understood quickly the first noble truth, the first noble truth, okay, of this, you know, when anything comes up in my mind, I don't have to deal, I, it doesn't have to be very complicated, you know. These four, this four noble truths are amazing, laid direct. I love when Ajahn Sumedho said, <laughs> just follow the signpost, you know, to London and you get there. Enlightenment actually faster than that. <laughs> but it's, it's true, I mean, we don't, we're not talking about enlightenment turning instantly into an arahat, you know, an arahant, but just seeing things as they are can be much quicker than just following the signpost to London, especially if you're on the M25. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, yeah, do you understand? Yes, okay, thank you I think very much. Said enough. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Hello, hello. Yeah. Uh, I've got a question about um, um, how to cultivate um, mindfulness um, in a potential young Buddhist. Um, you are my... a potential young Buddhist? <laughs> Not me. Um, okay. It's my daughter. Okay. Um, she's four and a half. Uh, she thinks she's a big girl and she wants to be a, um, a pink power ranger at this point in time. What, what does she want to be? Sorry. A, a pink power ranger. It's something on telly. Yeah. A fairy? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I figured that I've got about uh, five years because right now she thinks daddy's very cool. Um, but in about five years, judging from the experience of my friends, um, she's going to find me quite embarrassing. So I've got five years to think about how to, um, how to work out, how to cultivate um, mindfulness and maybe a meditation practice. Uh, what would be your advice um, in terms of what could be done and the stages up to the next five years for her, <laughs> potentially? Oh, my God. 
I, I hope I wouldn't have a father like you. <laughs> I think your intentions are very good. Sorry, I hope I didn't mean no, it. It's fine. I, I, I meant it in a good way. <laughs> I meant it for you, actually. I meant it for you more. I wouldn't no. have the father in me like you, because even though your intentions are very good, you know, that energy of control and fixing a little bit too much. Do you know what we teach here for the kids, you know, for your, of the age of your daughter? We just teach them to be really kind and generous and to take care of each other and to, um, just, just to be forgiving and that kind of thing. She's in charge of the kids. Yeah. You, can, you can take the so. <laughs> Sorry, I was too, But yes, I mean, uh, with the younger children, a lot of it is, uh, I think Ajahn Jayanta also spoke about this with regards to teenagers, you know, what, how, how, we, how we do the family camps, which is what I'm involved with, is, is just um, um, learning to live well together. You know? And that's, that's a huge... Um, lesson for people. It's um, and, and the, the children just pick it up naturally, um, but they wouldn't pick it up if you told them how to do it. <laughs> uh, so it's you know the, the you try and give an example and you try and give them the uh, the opportunity and the space, and and then you let it happen, <laughs> and it goes where it goes. Do you live in England? Uh, yes, I do. Um, she... Well, you must come to the summer camp sometime with your daughter. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, that, she learned a... a lot of things there. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's exactly um, the, the sort of things that um, I was hoping that you would say. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's, it's more, um, she's already developing very naturally. Um, she's already quite um, kind-hearted, and she'll go out of her way to help um, other yeah. kids. Um, you know, from the beginning to the end, I mean, when you start the practice at the end, the, the only thing that, I mean, it's not the only thing, it's the feeling of loving and caring for somebody, you know, whoever they are, whether it's a nun, a monk, or what, it's a, it's a question of being kind, but wise at the same time, not just kind and stupid, kind and wise, you know. So, but the feeling of loving kindness has such a power that for your daughter, if you were too kind of uh, uh, directing, you know, too directive, if you directed too much, like uh, Sister Tisara said, it can easily make them feel already controlled, you know. And that's one of the things that people will remember as a trauma, to be controlled constantly about what you do. You know, three, well, let's see, 70 years ago or something, maybe, or maybe 100 years ago, there was also, we, said, we used to say that this generation was, in the past was very controlling and they make their children do this and this and that. Now we could do the same, we could do the same with Buddhism, you know, so sit now, bow three times, you know, <laughs> wear white, you know, when you do this, you know, do this, do that. So it's the same kind of mind controlling, you know. Children really want to learn things. They really want. They really benefit from guidance and 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 uh, directive a little bit, you know. But if the heart in the, if you expect her to 
behave a certain way, that's when the uh, how, how can I say the, the harm can come from this expectation. You know, if you have an expectation, the way you spoke, I have five years, blah blah blah. My God, that poor girl. Maybe she needs ten years. You know, <laughs> how can she? You know, maybe you need twenty years to get over all that. It's not no. Uh, I mean, for me, I've always led with uh, a light touch, so yeah. it, it's more a um, uh, an aspiration for her more than she has to be like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's for what. the first seven years, to teach her how to relax and be kind, because the first seven years are really the most important years, I've been told. So if she has this um, well-rooted, uh, you know, well-grounded uh, feeling of kindness towards the world, towards herself, towards the people around her, she will t take that with her through her life. Thank you. Okay, we have still time for one question. Yes, they are very short. Uh, hi. Um, okay. Hopefully I can articulate this clearly. You, uh, I think you're speaking with... Um, I was just wondering if you could maybe reflect or uh, give me a balanced view on a certain aspect of the practice. Um, I hear very much uh, the, the kind of liberation uh, thing expressed in a way of uh, kind of just knowing in the present moment and not being entangled or identified with the uh, you know the bodily phenomena, the temporal phenomena, neither the pleasant or unpleasant aspects of it, uh, which seems very very positive and applicable to a, a monastic or a lay life. If it's just a case of of having a right view and, and being being present uh, without being identified or entangled. Um, but on the other hand, I hear a kind of quite literal teaching on, um, to quote one of the chants, being free from all sense desire and not being reborn into this world. Like um, in some of the books of this tradition and other traditions, uh, it's almost like there's a, a really extreme aversion that the only positive thing to being in a human body is that you have the capacity to wake up and never experience it again. Uh, which is not a very pleasant way to, to experience life. From my own experience, I feel like a great kind of inner conflict with that. Um, although I feel a great admiration and gratitude to people who are monastics because I've, they've pretty much given me everything that of the most benefit and value in my life. On the other hand, um, most of us have to live as lay people. Um, so, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm just asking, I guess, for a reflection or a balancing yeah. view on, on I mean, that. And your question is something that, have you finished? Sorry. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, all the questions were very good, but this question is also very, um, it's a very common question. All of us have been through this. I'm sure I certainly have been through this question. You know, I've been, you know, struggling with um, the perception of just ending and not being reborn, or you know, uh, of just having to end everything, and you know, and what will happen to me when I don't have my desire anymore, you know, and that kind of thing. And uh, but actually, reality of the Buddhist teaching has nothing to do with that. It's more dealing with a disease, you know. The disease in Buddhism will be called 
avidya, ignorance, okay? It has nothing to do with annihilating the body, not being reborn into this world. When you read the last sentence of the Metta Sutta, not being reborn into this world, the world in that kind of context is actually the world of suffering and delusion. You know, the world in the mind, the world we create. Right? It's not a physical world. It's a world we create out of avidya, to not be reborn into the world we create out of avidya, which is the cause of suffering. Do you understand? So you're dealing with the, the, the a context where the Buddha is saying, we are suffering from uh, the disease of avidya, not knowing, not understanding, not seeing clearly. So I'll give you the tool for you to be able to see clearly, to understand clearly the nature of your mind and your body. Okay? But also, along this path, there is an enormous amount of help and means to live a good life, a happy life, a kind life, a compassionate life, a generous life. Do you understand? So our life on the path is not... Do I sound very loud? Loud? In the, no? Not too loud, huh? No? Okay. So along, the, along, your life, along your life, you know, your path, you can say, as you walk along, you are encouraged all along to be kind and generous and act in the way that brings happiness into this world. So it's for each one of us to find our way. You understand? Um, you, if, if you think too much about it, it will drive you nuts. It truly, it, will drive, it can drive you crazy. If you think, what? How can you think about Nibbana? We're going often, you know, the, the goal is Nibbana, right? What is Nibbana? So what's that? Peace, they say peace, coolness. Actually, I found quite a good concept myself for Nibbana. Nibbana is absence. It's absence of greed, absence of delusion, and absence of avidya, of ignorance. How can we understand what an absence of something is for that poor mind which is filled up with stuff, which is chock a block with activity and things and greed, hatred, and delusion, and you ask this poor little mind to understand what it is to be like, what it's like to be without greed, without hatred, and without delusion. Do you understand? So all you have to do now in your life, you don't need even to think too much, do you suffer? If you suffer, then the Buddha gives you a good medicine. That's how I discovered the, the Buddhism. No, I didn't have particular suffering of um, you know, physical suffering or even great emotional suffering. It was more like suffering. What am I doing here? And seeing, listening to my mind, being confused, being conflicted, being not knowing what to do, being uh, you know not knowing when I'm going to die, in the, the old fear of death, and all that kind of thing. Okay. Then the worry about you know I didn't have so much material worry, but there was still the sense of what is this life about, you know. So then you bump into the Buddhist teaching if you're lucky. And then once you bump into the Buddhist teaching, then you realize it is just a, a, a mean to clear, to help you to let go of what causes suffering. That's all. 
So don't try to think too much in a kind of head way, uh, rationally too much. If you suffer mentally, physically, emotionally, you have good tools to understand your suffering and to let it go. Make sense? Uh, yeah, it sounds like you're affirming the non-literal view of rebirth. The no, uh, the non. The the very non-literal, like instead of not. What is what is a literal way? Well, the literal way would be this world has nothing but suffering, and I don't ever want to have a human body again because suffering is inevitable. But you seem to be reaffirming the view of um, no, no uh, psychological self being reborn, the one that suffers. Oh, I don't know psychological self. No. Okay, maybe I'm overcomplicating. You know, That's I okay. think you, you, uh, why don't you simplify your mind? You know, just let it all go. Let it all go. Create a nice place, you know, where you can have a few more things coming in. And a few more new things, you know, because psychological self is you. You have you read this in the book? Um, is well, yourself just psychological? You think? No, not at all. That's actually, you know, kind of part of the question. I'm, you know, I have an emotional self. I have a physical self. I I have creativity. You know, the whole experience of human life is very rounded. It has a lot of beautiful, wonderful things, and the idea of that. The only purpose of human life is to not be reborn into it again seems rather contrary to the miraculousness of the universe existence itself. Tell me, what are you doing here? Um, what am I doing here? <laughs> is that fun? <laughs> um, you mean why I came here? <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No, what I mean is that I know what you're saying. I know. I hear what you're saying because I have my, my this question has a reason in my mind and in other people's mind. My friends, you know, were not Buddhists particularly, so I know what you're talking about. But you don't have to follow this path, do you? If it doesn't really speak to you, why would you follow this path? Why would you want the Buddha to be right for you? There's many paths. We could be Sufi if you want to. They dance and they do <laughs> anything. I have a sister. I have sisters who've been a Sufi for 35 years. Another one with yoga, Christian. They all we kind of uh, interreligious family. But I understand the Buddha does not talk about being creative, being the great painter, great dancer, a great musician. A bit. That's not his main kind of theme. The theme of the Buddhist teaching has to do with understanding a vijja and letting it go, and then see what happens. But it's not everybody's cup of tea. Do you understand? It's not everybody. Not everybody is drawn to the Buddhist teaching because it doesn't mean anything much for them, or it's confusing. But you don't have to be confused. It's only a teaching that helps you to understand the suffering of your mind. And I know musicians, I know artists who are Buddhist, you know, I know they don't have to give up. if They, they just use their means to help themselves in their daily life and do the best. You know, there are lots of poets in this community. Well, not lots, but quite a few. Poets. There's been artists, like painters. Okay? All right? So it doesn't stop them from being good monks and nuns, you know. I think you, maybe we need to have another talk at some point, maybe. Uh, I, think, I think that's a pretty good answer, but I'd be happy to have another talk as well. Thank you. <laughs>
Okay, coming to 5.30, just a few minutes before 5.30, so we can stop now.